are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Christ is born, glorify him. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we are picking up this evening with a new step, step number 26 on page 190 on discernment of thoughts, passions, and virtues. And this is seen certainly as falling on humility and as a fruit of humility, that uh, as this virtue helps to perfect the others and, and helps to purify the heart, the greater our capacity becomes to see the truth, both about ourselves and our sin, but also about the, the things of God, the things of the kingdom. And, uh, and so discernment is one of these extraordinary gifts uh, that one should aspire to. And we can understand, I think, why it's in step number 26, why it would take so long to form in the mind and heart, given the nature of the battle that we, we struggle to get there. And so again, we're on page 190 for those who just joined us. And we'll pick up with the, the very beginning of the step. Discernment in beginners is true knowledge of themselves. In intermediate souls, it is a spiritual sense that faultlessly distinguishes what is truly good from what is of nature and opposed to it. And in the perfect, it is the knowledge which they have within by divine illumination and which can lighten with its lamp what is dark in others. Or perhaps generally speaking, discernment is and is recognized as the certain understanding of the divine will on all occasions, in every place, and in all matters. And it is only found in those who are, are pure in heart, and in body, and in mouth. So blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. That the purification of the passions, the removal of all the impediments, within the mind and the heart through the ascetic life, the life of grace, allows one to see with a greater clarity the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul, or what the fathers called the noose, is gradually purified, especially by the action of God's grace. And so uh, that which is darkened within becomes illuminated and allows us not only to see what is true within ourselves, but true about the things of God, those around us, and so allows us to see that truth also in all occasions, which is an extraordinary thing to be able to say. And again, I think what the fathers hold out to us 
is not only the discipline that's involved in the spiritual life, but the, the fruits of it and the beauty uh, of it, of that fruit as well. That to be able to see the things of God without impediment is to be able to see the full beauty of God's love, his mercy and compassion, but also to see the, the beauty of the other, not to lose sight of the dignity and the goodness of the other person, despite uh, sins or weaknesses and characters. And so it alters our perception of life, of, of the world itself. And, uh, and so if anything holds out to us, uh, the desire for the spiritual life or the ascetic life, or why we should desire it, uh, this would be one of, the, one of the great gifts, one of the great fruits one would desire um, to be able to see things with a kind of, of clarity. And certainly it's, it's no easy thing to reach. I think we make our way there slowly, certainly by struggling with and overcoming our sins, but also by being humbled uh, through many things throughout the course of our life. Uh, in, in such a way that we let go of the illusion of perceiving the truth uh, outside of the grace of God. And so no matter how piercing our perception might be of certain realities around us, we're never going to see all ends, and much less are we going to see about ourselves or the other person. And if anything, discernment shows us the mystery of the other person and uh and in this also to come to see something of their dignity so in the beginner he talks about it being a knowledge of oneself and so this is where we begin to see uh the development within us that we begin to see uh, the areas of struggle, in particular where we need to struggle the most, the, the passions that afflict us. This is where we will direct the battle as well as our, our prayers. Intermediate souls faultlessly distinguish what is truly good from what is of nature and opposed to it. So what is of God and, accord it, and in, in accord with the mind of God and his providence and what is really only uh, seen as true in light of our own wisdom or judgment, worldly, as it were, natural. And then the perfect knowledge which they have within by divine illumination. So the grace of God that illuminates all that is dark within the human heart. Number two. He who piously destroyed within him the three passions has destroyed the five too. But he who has been negligent about the former will not conquer even one passion. So if you look down at footnote number one at the very bottom of the page, the three he describes as gluttony, cupidity, vainglory. So gluttony, lust, vainglory, that overcoming these, you know, our appetite uh, our two bodily appetites, and then vain, vain glory uh, of, again, if having a false vision of, of the self, a prideful view of the self, that when these three are overcome, uh, then the other five, he says, are destroyed uh, very quickly, or we are able to overcome them with, with greater ease. But if we cling to these three, 
then we often can be forever uh, caught up in the others. And, um, and so again, this gives us a kind of clarity about where the struggle is to begin and why things such as you know, obedience, fasting in particular, uh, would be disciplines that we would seek to embrace, that to, to order our appetites, but also to humble ourselves in order that we might listen more to the will of God than to our own ego. And when we're able to do this, then we're able to, to struggle with the other vices. Discernment is undefiled conscience and purity of perception. And so if you remember many times in the past, we've talked of, of conscience as being uh, this capacity to, to know with God, or that would be uh, the sort of the literal definition of it. And, and what John is telling us is, is that this kind of discernment is when the, the conscience has no darkness within it and no weakness within it and there is purity of perception so again that anything that would cloud our judgment or, or darken our intellect prevent us from seeing the truth has been removed let no one on seeing or hearing something supernatural in the monastic way of life fall into unbelief out of ignorance for where the supernatural God dwells, much that is supernatural happens. So a curious little saying, you know, John is saying um, that one would expect that in the pursuit of God, what one would begin to experience the things that are above nature. And in particular, this greater capacity of uh, seeing the truth and again seeing the truth not only about oneself but of the realities of god and the, the things that come to us from god that uh, we should not uh, fall into a kind of unbelieving spirit about it but in, in fact come to expect it uh, and desire it that uh, this would be the fruit of this virtue and uh and so one wouldn't call it into the question. Sean writes, why would one fall into disbelief upon seeing the supernatural? I would think that it would lead one to believe in something more than oneself. Uh, I think that's true. And I think that's part of what John is saying here, that the demons would, I think, call it into question uh, that lead us to doubt the, the things that we are beginning to see and experience about ourselves and life. And often it is the, I think, the simpler and humbler realities of life where God is found, uh, but also uh, the, the ways that we are called to respond to God in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, often we can doubt uh, the the presence of God in those things as if they have a lack of significance or as if God is not present within them. And uh, it's often, again, in the simplest of things that we see, I think the, the supernatural, the presence of God, act most powerfully. 
And uh, I think the demons in some ways want to move us away from trusting in that in order uh, to complicate our lives, to fill the mind and the heart with things that are distractions that prevent us from seeing that which is true. I think it's those who live this simpler life all that often see most clearly the simple truths of human existence. Uh, we are often so adept at distracting ourselves um, and so busy that one doesn't have time for God. And I think when there's a kind of conceit that develops too, you know, about one's life or how one perceives things, uh, then one begins to doubt the, the presence and the significance of the su supernatural and the supernatural as active in our life too. We become very worldly in thinking about how we live our lives, how we approach our day-to-day -day life. If we trusted in uh, divine providence, if we trusted in uh, what is revealed to us through discernment, especially the presence of the supernatural, then the way we or would order our life would be radically different. Prayer would be... Uh, first and foremost in our life, uh, that we would be seeking God above all things. And I think this is where we get in more into the subtlety of how this doubt emerges, that the things of this life we think have such weight and importance that we have to control uh, and uh, manipulate them and shape you know, our lives in existence rather than trusting that God will guide us along the path that he desires. And, you know, so much of our life is spent, I think, doing that, seeking meaning and identity outside of this reality of the life and love of God. And so life can be very full and very complex, filled with things, but lacking God. And he'll get into, I think, some greater detail as to how this unbelief emerges as we move forward. Number five, every satanic conflict in us comes from these three generic causes, from negligence or from pride or from the envy of the demons. The first is pitiable. The second is most wretched but the third is blessed. So negligence, you know, the, the conflict that we feel within and in the spiritual life comes from our neglecting God and prayer and the ascetic life. And John says, this is pitiable, you know, for out of laziness to allow ourselves to lose hold of what has the greatest value for us as human beings. Pride is something that is wretched. Again, that is placing ourselves in the position of God, that we determine what it is that we do within this life rather than allowing ourselves to be guided and directed by his grace. Envy of the demons, though, it's interesting that he throws this in, is blessed when you find yourself being warred against because of the envy of the demons, when the battle becomes fierce and you see them using every tactic possible to pull you away from God and the things of God, then, then you know that you are traveling the right path. 
the spiritual path is not one of ease. And the gospel makes that pretty clear. You know, it is the narrow path that we strive, we agonize to walk upon, involves sorrow. Um, it's interesting today in the Eastern Rite is the feast of St. Stephen. And uh, the Latin Rite uh, celebrates this feast right around the same time. And uh, it's always interesting how quickly the church moves, I think, in framing the nativity, the incarnation for us and tying the crib to the cross that we we see what the incarnation means for us you know that stephen was the the first follower the first disciple to be martyred and so we move from those bright colored vestments right to red to make it clear to us uh what traveling this path is going to, to mean for us in order that we might not fall into a kind of sentimentality about our our faith or about the holy season which is an easy thing to do you know we as we dusted off the ornaments and the trees and put them up you know so we pack them up and put them away again for another year and that could be the extent of it rather than uh, you know, our eyes being opened in a greater way to see what the incarnation means for us, both in terms of our participation in the life of God, but also in regards to our participation in the cross. Number six. After God, let us have our conscience as our mentor and rule in all things so that we may know which way the wind is blowing and set our sails accordingly. So after God, after engaging in prayer, living in this constant remembrance of God, we would have conscience as our mentor, you know, that internal voice that rebukes when we turn away from the truth in order to guide us back upon the path that leads to God. And it also reveals to us which way the winds are blowing so that we can have a sense of where we need to direct ourselves in the spiritual life to, to return toward God. And uh, conscience, I think, is probably the most uh, misunderstood aspect of the spiritual life and who we are as human beings. I think it's become um, like private judgment that malformed or not uh, is to be followed, which is true. You know, conscience is to be obeyed, but it's not infallible. And this is one of the things I think our, our generation doesn't understand very well. It can be very fallible and completely unformed and darkened and so not guide us in the way that it should. Uh, but having been formed uh, by the grace of God, by the ascetic life, by scriptures, the example of the saints, it is our, can be our most powerful mentor uh, in the spiritual life. And so again, you know, where we spend our energies, it should be in the formation of conscience. You know, our study of the scriptures of the fathers, our study of the lives of the saints. 
in all our actions in which we try to please God, the demons dig three pits for us. By the first, they endeavor to prevent any good at all from being done. By the second, after their first defeat, they try to secure that it should not be done according to the will of God. But when these rogues fail in this too, then standing quietly before the soul, they praise us for living a thoroughly godly life. The first is to be opposed by zeal and fear of death, the second by obedience and humiliation, the third by unceasing self-condemnation. We shall be faced by toil of this kind until the divine fire enters into our sanctuary. For then our proclivities are rendered powerless. Our God is a fire consuming all fever of lust and movement of passion, every inclination rooted in us, and all blindness and darkness within and without, both visible and spiritual. So, great paragraph. And one to be noted and highlighted, uh, reread, that these pits that the demons set for us, you know, to prevent certainly doing good to begin with, you know, to do everything in their power to make it seem as something unattractive or unattainable, to convince us of our incapacity uh, for it. And when they fail to do this, then... Uh, to have it be done in a, in a way that is not in accord with the will of God, which is an interesting thing, uh, that we would press forward to do something good, but something that, again, is in accord with our own judgment and that we desire at that particular moment. This is such a hard thing, you know, because when we grow in the spiritual life and the appreciation of the things of God, that which is good, we can have it in our mind to want to do something or want to take a particular path. And, and certain paths can be put before us, but not necessarily the path that God desires for us or at the time that he desires it for us as well. And so the pit that they set for us is do this. And in our minds uh, and in our hearts, it seems to be good and it is good but there is self-will that is driving it. And this is such an important thing, I think, to see within this spiritual life and requires a kind of humility to search the heart deeply to see, uh, you know, there was more of me in that and or in so many things that I've done than there was of God and that I was doing them simply to satisfy my own desire, albeit a religious desire. And the third, when they failed in getting us to do that, when we become aware enough to scrutinize the intention, then to praise us for a godly life, you know, to build up the ego that, ah, you know, you've overcome you know, this kind of temptation, you're beginning to see things with a kind of clarity. You've even been willing to humble yourself on occasions, <laughs> you know, of all things to be tripped up on. You know, it's like, oh, I endured that painful hu humiliation. And uh, within it, though, having a secret glee. And it's, 
it's it's I shouldn't laugh because in reality it's not humorous, but it, there is a kind of foolishness, an unholy foolishness that we fall fall into, uh, even while seeking to pursue the things of God. The one thing, though, that he says eventually begins to take place in the soul, and what purifies it the most is when the divine fire, when the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth dwells within our heart. This is what ultimately consumes you know, all lust, all passions, every inclination towards sin that might still be rooted within the soul. And so our abandonment to God our immersion in the life of prayer, in the sacramental life. Uh, this is what opens us up, up to his action. And so to let go of you know, self-judgment and uh, the path to this, he says, this is unceasing self-condemnation. So we never let off of this kind of self-abasement that we've talked about that we realize that in our poverty, even in the pursuit of good, we can be deluded. And so we hold on to the, you know, this poverty of spirit as we stand before God, not as we stand before our neighbor or others within the world, but as we stand before God. This alone prevents us from uh, going down, falling into that pit. Oops. Telephone call coming in. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, so, very important paragraph. Number eight. The demons, on the other hand, produce in us the opposite of what has just been said. When they take possession of the soul and extinguish the light of the mind, then there is no longer in us, poor wretches, sobriety or discernment or self-knowledge or shame. But there is indifference, insensitivity, want of discernment and blindness. So the, the demons can uh, work to extinguish the light that God has, has given to us by cultivating all the, the things that we here uh, have described you know we lose a kind of sobriety of spirit uh we become indifferent uh to the things that we expose ourselves uh insensitive to both the movements of god's grace but also to the approach of temptation uh, and so we then begin to lose this capacity to see with clarity. We fall into a lack of discernment and then utter blindness. And the movement to that can be ever so swift, especially if, if it involves pride for us. Number nine, what has just been said is known very vividly by those who have abandoned fornication and become chaste, who have curbed their freedom of speech and have changed from shamelessness to self-possession. They know how after the sobering of the mind, after the ending of its blindness, or rather its maiming, they are inwardly ashamed of themselves for what they said and did before when they were living in blindness. So, you know, those who have struggled and those who have overcome 
come then to see quickly how easily they can fall back into that and how ugly a thing this is, how, how the demons draw us back and how destructive it is to the soul. You know, those who have really fought over the course of time to free themselves from this bondage. If the day in our soul does not draw to evening and grow dark, then the thieves will not come and steal and kill and destroy our soul. This is a reference you see in the in the margin to John 10, 10. Uh, but it is a call, I think, for us to press on in the spiritual battle. That we know uh, that the enemies are going to uh, dig these pits for us or seek to undo uh, the work of God within the heart. And so as long as we keep the day, the light in our soul, we don't allow it to, to ourselves to slip into darkness, uh, then you know, we can be at peace. But that requires that we, you know, really maintain this kind of sobriety, watchfulness throughout the course of our life, that we don't let up in the spiritual battle. That's quite a few of, of the sayings. Anybody have any comments or questions so far on discernment or any of the comments of John? Number 11, theft is loss of property. Theft is doing what is not good as if it were good. Theft is unobserved captivity of the soul. The slaying of the soul is the death of the rational mind that has fallen into nefarious deeds. Destruction is despair of oneself following on breach of the law. So, you know, what John is being beginning to lay here before us is, you know, this kind of theft that is committed by the evil one and what it ultimately leads us to, not only once again back into a kind of captivity to our sins, uh, but a kind of spiritual death, he describes here, of the rational mind. And, uh, and so a death to the very faculty through which we come to see the things of God, and then despair itself, losing hope in the mercy of God. Uh, so the, the darkness becomes uh, complete. And, uh, and once we've fallen into this, you know, what, what is it that can lift us out of it? What will give us light after we've abandoned it through falling falling back into sin or allowing it to be the, the virtue from uh, to be stolen from us. Sean writes, it's interesting that he links soul and mind in 11, which he also does in number eight. These two are usually seen as separate or at least distinct with the soul being pure. It's like the mind reflects the soul and the soul can go toward either the good or the bad. Well, I think the language that's being used here, and I think part of the uh, the uh, lack of clarity is rooted in the translation into English. I think it's more likely that, that when he they're describing the, the mind, uh, 
uh, it would be the noose. And so when it is pure, then the soul is pure and knows which way to go, uh, either uh, to avoid the bad or toward the good. And so they are tied together. Uh, there isn't this you know, distinct clarity between things within us. You know, we, we dissect things, I think, to understand them uh, you know, in our reading and our understanding of human anthropology. But uh, you know, in reality, uh, the, the link is always there and the, the movement is often swift. You know, when we, when the mind becomes darkened or the noose becomes darkened, then the, the whole soul becomes dark. And uh, Christ speaks about this in the gospel. You know, when we lose this light, then how, how dark things become for us when we lose the light of Christ himself. The darkness uh, becomes uh, uh, unimaginable. Number 12. Let no one plead his incapacity to fulfill the commandments of the gospel. For there are souls who have gone even beyond the commandments. And you will certainly be convinced of what has been said by him who loved his neighbor more than himself and laid down his life for him, although he had not received this commandment from the Lord. And so he's speaking here of a, of a particular father i didn't have the opportunity to to read up on the story i apologize for that you know one who goes further than the extra mile as it were on behalf of of his brothers uh but the the pleading incapacity i think is a common uh fault of ours in the spiritual life that we tell ourselves that this kind of life is not possible for us. And uh, as in so many things, you know, psychological and spiritual, there can be a kind of learned helplessness uh, that we fall into. And, uh, and there can be a kind of comfort in that, uh, at least in the sense of our own laziness. If we tell ourselves, this is beyond me, you know, I'm not capable of doing this, I'm not capable of enduring this, then in some sense we are denying the power of God's grace, that with him all things are possible. And this isn't the same as humility. Uh, this is a kind of a, a lack of faith or lack of trust in God that is, is rooted, I think, in a kind of a, a negligence. And, uh, and so, you know, this is why he holds up for us the image of one who not only fulfills the gospel, the commands of the gospel, but goes even further than what is described there. Uh, this willingness to lay down one's life in some of these extraordinary ways that we see within the lives uh, of the saints. And Christ sort of gives an intimation uh, uh, in the gospel about this, that you will see greater things than these, you know, that by the action of his grace, that what is will be made manifest in his saints 
will be every bit as, as powerful and ex extraordinary. And, you know, I think when we are constantly surrounded by, you know, the things that are contrary to God, and when we become immersed in them ourselves, where it becomes habitual, and we've developed an attachment to not only the sin, but the things that lead to it, then I think there's going to be something within our minds that, you know, that wants to tell ourselves, I can't, I can't do this. Uh, because we, we do not want not only to expend the effort, uh, but un we don't want to undergo the trial or bear the cross uh, of, of walking this path of dying to self and to sin. We're still holding on to ego and desiring to, to walk the path that, that we desire. or that we would think would bring bring us fulfillment. So sickness, I think, is a good thing. Usually guys are pretty pathetic when we get colds. <laughs> you know, I just, I can't do it today. You know, I'm so sick and, you know, we can magnify it in our, our minds, you know, call off you know, take a mental health day, whatever it might be, uh, rather than push, push through. And, uh, and we do that in the spiritual life too. I just can't do it. I can't do it. I can't endure. Number 13. But those who have been humbled by their passions take courage. For even if they fall into every pit, and are trapped in all the snares and suffer all maladies. Yet after their restoration to health, they become physicians, beacons, lamps, and pilots for all, teaching us the habits of every disease and from their own personal experience, able to rescue those who are about to fall. Uh, there's a couple of passages in Paul's writing where he speaks of this, you know, that, you know, he gives from what he has received and offers consolation, uh, the consolation that he has first received from God as well, that his response to others is driven by the experience of God's mercy in his own life. And so uh, John is telling us that, you know, even if we, a certain part of our life have been humbled in every fashion if we've fallen into every pit we've seemed to have committed every sin and held on to them for years until we experience healing that god can make use of that so do not lose hope that god can make use of that to to have you become a servant that bring will bring healing to others you know precisely out of the experience of your own poverty and your own capacity to sin you know the pitfalls, where they are, to help people avoid them. And, you know, I think, you know, often, you know, you often hear stories of doctors taking that path in particular because, you know, they experienced some illness in their lives themselves and saw the impact 
that you know a doctor had upon them or um or or the you know or somebody in their family who had an illness who wasn't able to be treated and so they they enter into that in order to dedicate themselves to the service of others going through what they saw loved ones go through and so often it is those who have been struck down by their own sin uh, and raised up by the grace and the mercy of God that find within themselves such a, a strong desire then uh, to serve others in order that they might not fall into the same pit that they fell themselves. You know, especially those who have found themselves, you know, for years uh, walking without counsel, you know, walking in blindness and uh, realizing, uh, you know, how painful that can be, how lost one can feel in the spiritual life, then wanting to be able to, uh, to be with others and to enter into their hell to their struggle with them and not fearing it but uh being able to enter into it take it upon themselves uh in the most uh real and personal fashion so that the person is not in isolation and bearing the burden alone any comments or questions so uh you know, John Vianney uh, used to make a little comment that, you know, that he would give lighter penances and that uh, part of the reason behind this is that he would be taking on the larger measure of that penance on behalf of his penitents. And, uh, and so he's one who understood this, I think, very well, you know, that he understood the spiritual battle well and the nature of it, how fierce it can be. And so even in the penances that he would give to others, that he would take take on the larger portion of them while giving them a lighter lighter one. Number 14. If some are still dominated by their former bad habits, and you can teach by mere word, let them teach, but they should not have authority as well. So interesting. You know, a person who is still dominated uh, may have a kind of knowledge and understanding of that spiritual battle. Uh, and so allowed to teach about it, but not to be put in a position of authority where discernment in particular is needed. You know, when you are responsible for the guidance of others or a whole community, uh, that you wouldn't be put in a position of authority, of, uh, of authority over others. That there's a kind of danger when a person is still driven by their passions to some extent for them to be in that position. Because it can feed pride, it can feed all sorts of different things and then becoming very destructive to the whole group. Or perhaps being put to shame by their own words, they might begin to practice virtue and there come to pass in them that which I saw with certain men who were stuck in the mud. So, you know, the very teaching of others, talking to them about their struggle while still knowing the struggle themselves 
humbles them and creates within them a greater desire to enter into this spiritual battle. And so this would be sort of the second reason that John would allow them to, to teach that hopefully that they they would take hold of the wisdom that they would be sharing with others and embrace it more fully, that it would strike to their own heart. Bogged down as they were, they were telling the passersby how they had sunk there, explaining this for their salvation so that they should not fall in the same way. However, for the salvation of others, the all-powerful God delivered them from the mud as well. But if those who are possessed by passions voluntarily plunge into pleasures, let them teach by silence. For Jesus began both to do and to teach. And so, you know, a person who voluntarily throws themselves into things, uh, into the pleasures of this world that then give rise to the passions, that th then they would teach by silence, that the part of their penitential life would be to immerse themselves in the silence of prayer in order that God might teach them. And often this becomes something then that others learn from it as well, you know, that if you can't teach truly by your words or even by your actions, let your silence then teach, teach others. That you're able to at least, you know, uh, keep to the silence and, and keep one's mouth closed. Pleasures, Sean writes, equals mud in the story, I would think. Yeah, I would, I would say that's, a pretty strong interpretation. Number 15. Perilous, truly perilous, is the sea that we humble monks are crossing, a sea in which there are many winds, rocks, whirlpools, pirates, waterspouts, shallows, monsters, and waves. A rock in the soul we may consider to be fierce and sudden anger. A whirlpool is hopelessness which seizes the mind and strives to drag it into the depths of despair. A shallow is ignorance which accepts what is, ba what is bad as good. A monster is the heavy and savage body. Pirates are the most dangerous servants of vainglory who rifle our cargo and the hard-won earnings of virtue. A wave is a swollen and burdened stomach, which by its greed hands us over to the beast. A waterspout is pride that casts us down from heaven, that carries us up to the sky and then down into the abyss. Wow, wonderful images and very powerful you know, especially for the seafaring, I suppose, uh, but uh, nonetheless, all, all very powerful that I think makes uh, some of his teaching here on discernment uh, come to us with a kind of clarity. You know, a whirlpool, is, for example, is hopelessness which seizes the mind and strives to drive it down into the depths of despair. 
which is exactly what happens with despondency, you know, that we begin to lose hope in God and the grace of God, and then uh, give up altogether in the spiritual battle. Those who engaged in education know what studies are suitable for beginners, what for the intermediate, and what for teachers. Let us take sensible precautions not to prolong our study and stop in the beginner's lessons. For to see an old man going to a children's school is a great disgrace. So, you know, there has to be a kind of striving in the spiritual life, uh, uh, a striving toward God and toward greater holiness, that one can be satisfied with what one has learned in one's youth, along with the expectations that one would have of a child. And, uh, and he says here, you know, to see an old man going to a children's school is a great disgrace. You know, an old man struggling with the passions of the flesh, you know, who's never uh, gotten beyond, the say, the, the basics of the spiritual life, never has learned to discipline the appetites or to fast, how to pray, uh, or what to avoid, and so hasn't continued in that spiritual formation over the course of the years. And uh, I think we see the fruit of that, you know, that their uh, catechesis, uh, not only in terms of the, the teachings of the faith, but in formation on how to live the faith, to live the gospel, uh, the, the first is often lacking, the, uh, in, uh, or, uh, but the, the second is uh even lacking in places where it should be like seminaries uh you know in the sense of this spiritual and moral formation you know it will think again uh in regards to you know notional understanding of things the teach what does the church teach you know a creedal view of the faith or a very basic understanding of the of the nature of prayer but not really labor to understand the science of sciences, the art of arts. That is what we receive from the fathers who engaged in the spiritual life in the deepest way in order that we might understand the workings of the mind and the heart as well as the temptations that come to us from the evil one. And so as we grow in age and we face more and more in this life, the, the, if we are unprepared, we are going to remain slaves uh, to our, our baser desires and needs and uh, never be able to come to even taste something of the fruit of the virtues in order to come to desire them on a, on a deeper level. And we've talked about this before, how often the fathers talk about loving the virtues or loving the certain spiritual practices, loving prayer, to love fasting. You know, one only comes to that point by having studied the fathers and by having put into practice what they've taught 
until you learn by experience the beauty of these things and the freedom and the joy that they bring. And to talk about them in a mere notional way to others and that, uh, in a way that doesn't really arise out of experience is never going to pierce very deeply into the minds and the hearts of those who would listen to us. And, uh, and so, you know, this is a great point that John is, is making, you know, that often religious education even ends at, uh, in the Latin rite, at least it's at uh, confirmation. Uh, it can be completely non-existent, you know, uh, in other places. And, uh, and even now the lack of giving, you know, children the sacraments uh, as an aid and the struggle uh, for the life of grace. And so what John does here is, is he presents us with this like little alphabet uh, to, to see you know, what should be our path forward and how we would uh, evaluate our growth. And we, we, we often don't have a kind of clarity about that, you know, what are some of the signs uh, where we are growing in the spiritual life or where we, where we might be struggling? And so he puts together this little alphabet, you know, the first being obedience, you know, setting aside one's will. And as we've often talked about learning to listen to the other, most importantly, listen to God. So setting aside one's will by being obedient to a, a worldly superior allows us ultimately to be, uh, be able to listen uh, to the word that God desires to speak to us. Fasting, you know, always at the, the forefront of the, the list, you know, that we uh, limit our appetite for food, that we struggle with the first of the capital sins, gluttony. Uh, sackcloth, you know, moving away from bodily comfort uh, in, you know, the multitude of ways that we seek it. I don't think sackcloth here means that we all need to run out and buy some burlap and start wearing it. But uh, I think the call is to evaluate our lives and, you know, ask ourselves, what are the ways that we are clinging to certain comforts that are beyond necess necessity? And that we, you know, have a kind of yearning for ease of life. And so aren't training the, the mind and the heart. Ashes, you know, acknowledging our own mortality. So the remembrance of death, tears, so mourning, compunction, sorrow for the sin that we have created, silence. So again, Listening for listening for the word that God desires to speak to the heart, and uh, silencing you know the the voice with, with or voices within ourselves as well as those around us. So seeking a kind of solitude uh, in order that we might listen more fully to God. Humility, so truthful living, vigil. Again, something that we don't hear uh about very often and uh and you know it's not something that can be sought simply uh and achieved simply by 
personal discipline or decision. You know, John uh, in the text speaks of it as a gift of God, one of the gifts of God. So this ability to break the night in prayer or to spend the night in prayer is something that comes as a gift of God, that we are able to remain within that communion rather than being drawn drawn into to sleep. Uh, courage. And so, the, you know, we have the, the fortitude that we need to endure in, both in the face of our own poverty, but the assault that comes against us. Cold. Uh, again, not clinging to bodily comforts. You know, uh, you know when we think of uh, the early monks, some of them were open air monks, like living under the stars kind of thing. And uh, as Art would attest, is he still here? Uh, even if you live in the desert, uh, the nights can get pretty cold. And, uh, and so uh, being willing to endure that as well as toil. Uh, so labor and uh, not living our faith life out, oh, again, only in our mind, but uh, engaging physical and physical work uh, because there's something that is humbling about that, uh, you know, that we become much more attuned, uh, I think, uh, to who we are as human beings uh, and engaging in this toil uh, that is part of our sin or one of the fruits of it and the hardship that follows from that. Uh, there's something very humbling about it, but also that allows us to pray in a certain way too. Physical labor allows us to have this kind of remembrance of God where we get out of our head and we are able to focus upon him clearly. Hardship, humiliation, you know, our, our willingness uh, to be brought low and uh, to move away from a kind of touchiness and defensiveness where we want to protect our self-esteem and our image in the eyes of others. Contrition, so, so again, sorrow for, for one's sins, forgetfulness of wrongs. So our willingness to let go of the memory of what other people have done to us. You know, one of our great struggles in the spiritual life and often rooted in very real experiences is our ruminating on the wrongs that others have done to us. And it's a difficult thing because when it's rooted in a real wound, you know, we can still feel the pain of it decades later in, in our life. And, uh, and the ruminating is sort of like picking the scab. And we often don't allow a kind of healing to take place. Brotherly love. And so developing a genuine affection for others, but not just a affection on a natural level, but on a spiritual level that we desire the, the salvation of others and the spiritual well-being of others. Remember that little 
saying that our greeting to others should not be hi how you doing but rather how is your prayer life you know that this this is the uh thing that sort of indicates really the, the person's true state and how well they are doing uh and meekness and uh we might have to stop there but meekness this is an uh an important one to consider because it's often misinterpreted as a as a kind of weakness rather than strength you know to be attacked to be insulted uh but to be able to respond to that with uh not losing a sense of oneself and identity in Christ, and to allow one's response to be tempered by love, that is virtue, that, that is strength, and uh, it's not weakness, it's not like being a doormat, it's allow not allowing one's anger to control one oneself to such an extent that we strike out or lash out at the other. And that's no small virtue to have. And so that brings us to state 30. I don't want to, I'm not going to run through these, even though they're sort of awkward lists to go through, but I think nonetheless helpful. Uh, but any comments before we, we let off for the evening? Anything about what John is talking about here in discernment? I think it's a much different uh perception of discernment than what we get today you know it's not just thinking things through and uh or you know wondering you know what what jesus would do you know i think uh, not to be flip i don't want to be flippant about that i shouldn't say it that way but i think what we're shown here is that that it is live seeking to live in union with christ and such radical union with him that his virtue becomes our virtue, his strength becomes our strength, that we begin to put on the mind of Christ, as Paul, Paul tells us in the letter of, of, to the Romans, and that it arises out of this purification of the heart, of the eye of the soul, of the eye of the heart, that, we're, that enables us to see things as God sees them, see them in their full truth. And ultimately, as we heard at the top of the previous page, that it means opening the mind and the heart to the very fire of God that consumes any sin within, within the heart. This is what allows true discernment to emerge. Otherwise, we turn discernment into, again, our ruminating on the details of circumstances, what seems right to us in accord with our own judgment. We're still acting on a very natural level here. And often our perception of discernment doesn't go any further than that. Whereas the ascetic life says no. You know, it, it, it arises out of this great toil, humility, and union with God. This is where, you know, we begin to put on the mind of Christ and be able to see things with a kind of clarity. And if we know that one of the ways that the demons try to trip us up is even to lead us to do good simply in accord with our own judgment and will, you know, we can see where a lack of discernment is, real, is going to make us very vulnerable. 
we can convince ourselves that all, oh, that all kinds of things are good. It's the will of God. So, all right. That brings us to 8.30. And so we'll pick up next week. Um, well, actually, let me see. Next Monday is the first, isn't it? And uh, so I hate to miss the Evergatinos two weeks in a row. Uh, so my liturgy is in the morning that day. And so I'm going to have the Evergatinos next Monday. <laughs> and whoever is able to come is able to come. This is why we have a podcast. And so we'll have both groups next week. All right. So uh, when we close then, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.